Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, it's my distinct honor to welcome Danielle Beasley to the show. Now, Danielle and I very recently met like a couple weeks ago. By the time you're listening to this, it's been months. But when I met her, I was just so taken aback by her own personal journey into personal finance and the different iterations there, and really very excited about where she's going with her work into the field of financial therapy and deeper and deeper into client psychology. And so I'm really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today about her own journey in personal finance, both personally and professionally. So Danielle, welcome to the show. And why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you so much for having me, Ed. And it was an honor to be introduced to you and meet you. And so I will go back. I have very strong family roots. And when I was in high school and when I was deciding what I wanted to be when I grew up, I was looking at this career aptitude chart. And I was driven by, my family had humble beginnings. And so I was driven by, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to make a lot of money. I didn't know what that meant, how to actually handle the money. But I was looking at a career aptitude chart and it was a financial, a stockbroker, or being a doctor. Doctor was going to put me in school too long. And my grandfather was a potato broker. So I thought, that's it. I'm going to follow grandpa's footsteps and I'm going to become a stockbroker. Didn't know what that meant. All I knew, and of course, a stockbroker is not a potato broker. He was not dealing in commodities. He was working at the local shed in Idaho, um, selling some of uh, Idaho's gold, if you will, those big spuds. But I was just fascinated by the world of investments. And that was, besides running my own dance studio and pulling the receipts in high school, that is just kind of where my interest took me. And so I joined the, the world of active investment management, started various boutique active investment management firms. And when I became client focusing, a client focusing relationship manager in a small cap firm that I co-founded, I was running the corporate financials. And I realized that my partner was the investor. He was the smartest stock picker in the room. The clients didn't want to have those conversations of what stocks am I putting in my portfolio? They just really wanted to talk about the fundamental and the basics. Am I on track to retire? Uh, can I put my children, my grandchildren through college? What's the best way to do that? And so I was creating personal financial statements with them or kind of forecasting their cash flows and shoving the investment presentation under the book. That's when I realized this is really what I wanted to do. And then also working at an active firm. Some of my clients, it wasn't really the right thing to do to put them in a concentrated portfolio with the innovation of ETFs, if you will. Wow. I knew this was going to be great. And it's already off to a fantastic start. I love it. The career aptitude, humble beginnings. Grandpa's a potato broker. And so you hear these Mm -hmm. words, stockbroker, and it sounds like didn't even fully quite know what that (laughs) meant. But you're like, okay, grandpa's (laughs) a broker. I'll be a broker. 
not potatoes, yep. stocks. And yep. fast forward, you get you accelerate into high finance and complex investments. And you said small cap fund. You, I think you said you helped start or launch that fund. Yeah. Well, I didn't help start the fund. I, I co-founded the firm with my partner. So he was everything stocks and I was everything else in the firm. And I took the client lead for all of our client relationships and selling the selling our strategy because I knew all of our uh, founding clients. And so I just continued that relationship. And I love it. I, I continually always want to push and grow myself. And so as I understood the business side of investments, operations, the compliance side of it, what I really loved to do was work with a client, help them have a better relationship with their money. And so then I had to level up a little bit. And that's kind of when I went to pursue my CFP education and also now pursuing getting that certification in financial therapy. Wow. I mean, I think one of the things that struck me when we were talking the other day is kind of, I think what I heard was a shift in investment outlook for the, for most clients. You worked as an mm-hmm. active manager, active fund manager. And so mm-hmm. stock picking yep. and trying to kind of outsmart the average market return. And now mm-hmm. you you have a different outlook for most people on what's right. Can you talk about kind of the, the psychological shift there? Because I you know, that's one of the things I find when I'm working with quite a number of clients is one partner is has kind of this active trader mentality, mm-hmm. and the other one has a let's just buy and hold and ride ride out the course of this. And so mm-hmm. I'm always curious about working with those two different investment philosophies. And so yeah, mm-hmm. well, I, w- I will say that even going back to my roots, I was my mother was a single mother and hardworking, and so I was really spent a lot of time with my grandparents and was raised by my grandparents and my grandmother really instilled being authentic. My word is everything to me. And so as I was having these conversations with high net worth individuals, the institutional market is completely different. But working with high high net worth individuals, I had to sit there and look and say, what's really not the best thing for them to be concentrated? Now, I will say that my investment philosophy is still core satellite approach. Right, the only way, you know, statistically, only one percent of active managers beat the market. But if you're going to be in that one percent, you want to go small, so micro and small cap. So I still kind of have that in my roots. But it was about my integrity sitting in front of these high net worth clients, and even though we had balanced portfolios for them, they really had a lot of risk in 35 names, equity names in their portfolio, and then also owned the underlying fixed in component in yeah. a lot of those names. And thankfully, with innovation in our market, with ETFs and the expansion of mutual funds, I knew that that's where I wanted to go with my future. And my business partner wasn't going, you know, he didn't like ETFs, but there was no other mutual fund other than our own. And so I knew that I was going to have to leave a, a company that I really founded with my heart, never worked so hard in my life until now I found my own company. But I knew that it was the right thing for clients. And as a fiduciary, that's the most important thing. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I appreciate your willingness to talk about that transition. And as you continue to evaluate the markets and you use statistics, and this is something that's challenging for a lot of folks is how do we use, what information do we use to make our investing decisions? And a number of people get afraid of using statistics or math to help inform really good decisions. But when it comes to investment returns, Math is a really powerful tool. I think 
above and beyond intuition, right? Which is where some people mm-hmm. live is like, I want to use my intuition and my gut feeling about what this is going to do. And unfortunately, that gut feeling is often wrong when it comes to investing. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you've seen and experienced? Yeah. And, and I would like to differentiate between the institutional world where math is everything, right? They yeah. have teams that put together the analytical data and they're tracking the different sectors and going in, in and out of these various investments. But I find for most high net worth clients, buying the market is okay. And really where they need to spend a lot of time is that psychological things. Why am I doing this? It's little it's not about the performance and beating the market. And I beat it by 50 basis points. They don't even know what basis points is. And they don't even really know, you know, what that measure of performance is. That again, comes from the institutional world. And that's why I think that focusing on the behavioral aspects is the most important things and matching the math, not with the investment side of things, but with the math of how is this going to fund my lifestyle for the next five, 25, 50 years? And how am I going to leave a legacy for my family? Wow. I love that reframe. And it's, I think there's so many folks that can get so hyper-focused on their performance as the most important kind of financial metric. And yet what you're reframing, it sounds like is your investment portfolio performance is kind of actually the least of your concerns. That, I don't know if you're saying that. I, that it's might important. be me. It's important. I was going to say, it's really important as long as the diversification is there and you have a solid investment plan in place, you're not our investment portfolio for high net worth clients. In my opinion, it's not changing like the wind. I'm going to get into crypto. I'm going to get into the biotech industry. I'm going to, or it's sector. I'm going to follow healthcare sector. That's not what's important in a high net worth individual. Diversify within some of the best fund managers out there. But I find that I spend 95% of my time focused on the conversations around the emotional aspects of managing our finances. Yeah, I think that, that, and that's where I've ended up. And that's partly why I'm doing the work now is it, yeah, I started out and I thought, oh, if I get a CFP and then there was MBA and concentration in finance. And if I understand the investment analysis, I'll really be able to create so much value for my clients. And the reality is for most couples and individuals, that's not what's really important to them. I mean, it's a piece mm-hmm. And the, the data science and the math supports broad-based, diverse investments, set it and forget it. Get on with your life mm-hmm. and enjoy it and deal with those behavioral problems around money that are going to erode. So, sorry, I'm, I'm losing track. Let me come back and say, you know, what are, so what are those themes in the high net worth families that you're working with that you find showing up over and over again that you need, they need help coach, being coached through or worked on? Well, I, I'm a single mother. I was raised by a single mother. And so I like to position myself as an accountability partner because when it comes to math or investments, we all know diversification and we all know don't put your eggs in one basket, but it's the social influences of our friends. And even going back to that analogy, when I said stockbroker, our industry used to be about, you have a hot stock tip for me, right? It's it's something to talk about at the water cooler. And so now there's innovation of cryptocurrency and all these other new technologies to invest in. And so we get distracted by the shiny thing, if you will, to Mm -hmm. want to have a good conversation at the water cooler. But I found that the younger generation, millennials are the largest workforce 
today. Right. They really want to be authentic, show up, be vulnerable. Why? I don't see having a conversation at the water cooler or with your friends. I just met with my financial advisor and I'm going to run out of money in five years. They're still not there. But I think the more that we can normalize that, wow, you dealt with this too. Danielle, you dealt with this too, even as as a professional. The more that we can normalize these conversations, I think that the higher the likelihood that individuals can truly be successful in their financial lives. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you on that. Sometimes, you know, when I have guests on the podcast, it's like, I feel like we're we're in the choir together singing. I'm just trying to find other voices that <laughs> you know, compliment my voice. You know, so we're in yeah. this choir together. And it's, but it is this massive shift in our culture and society around what role does money play? What responsibilities do we need to take with money? And of generations past, my grandparents had incredible pension programs. So as long as they mm-hmm. weren't in major debt, Unicorn. when they retired, they didn't have to worry about how much money to save for their retirement. They just knew the company's taking X percentage off and they'll fund my retirement when I'm done. Well, that, that's gone by, by and large, right? And before the, our grand, my grandparents' mm-hmm. generation, retirement planning wasn't even a concept that, that I know of. <laughs> and so no. as a human species, we're, we're coming to terms with what does this retirement planning thing mean for us? How do we do it well? Humans on the whole are not great at super long-term planning 30, 40, 50 years out, like getting to ourselves to think out that far. And, and so that's part of the role of the financial planner is to be able to hold that bigger vision and help people understand how decisions you're making today will impact your life 30, 40, 50 years down the road and how to care for both your future self and your present self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talk about you know your future self selfie. That's really nurturing your future selfie. And you had asked some common themes. And I don't think I answered that. And I, it's simply the lack of financial knowledge. And I think you hit it on the head when you talked about the older generations. We had a pension or Social Security was going to take care of us. Now, we, <laughs> then you open up the newspaper today and Social Security is going to run out of money in, in 2034. And what I find with my older clients is they roll out their money from their pension plan or their 401k, and they have no idea how to manage this chunk of cash, if you will, and to be able to project it out and to find a trusted advisor to be able to do it. And I will give our industry some credit. A lot of custodians, they have model portfolios or even robo-advice. There's problems with that because they don't invest your cash, if you will. Yeah. But I think that we are getting closer to be able to help individuals. But I, I think that the gap is that behavioral science aspect of it. Oh, I really like that. I think, you know, one of the things I've been kicking around in my head is like the finan- learning how to use the financial tools or products. Like we got to consume, like, what is this mm-hmm. mutual fund that I'm having? How does it work? But then it's the behavioral, like, okay, once we got like the right financial products purchased and buying our mutual fund diversified portfolio being a big one, and we're on that track, how uh, so many people, myself included, still feel financial anxiety, mm-hmm. still feel financial worry. So it's like, okay, what do we do now if I'm doing all the right things from a financial planning standpoint to either be accumulating or if I'm in the 
drawdown phase I'm drawing down, that plan says everything is going to work out, but I still don't feel okay. Now what do we do? <laughs> right? <laughs> you call Ed, right? And, and that's where you have those therapy conversations. And I will say that even, you know, financial advisors need financial therapy as well, because I feel like I take on a lot of anxiety from my clients if they don't see the cliff that they're headed towards. And so I spend a lot of time trying to talk to myself. How do I release that and have a conversation, an engaging conversation? But often when I end a meeting with a client, I walk away saying, I want to do better. How can I do better? How Mm. can I help my clients help themselves? And that's ultimately what got me introduced to you, Ed, which I'm very grateful for and look forward to continuing our relationship. Yeah, absolutely. When I think that that's a powerful thing for listeners, you know, so many people that are listening are consumers of financial planning and therapy services, both of those. And kind of the guests I'm having on either often represent one side or the other, and, and they're trying to move towards the middle of that. And I love what I hope people hear is that spirit of, man, I want to just keep improving for my clients. I want to keep serving mm-hmm. them better. And there's, there is, I feel that too. I mean, it's this ongoing journey of, working with clients, our clients teach us so much about what we don't know. And then we go and search and try to figure mm-hmm. out answers. And then we try to bring them back and, and use them with it. And so I think if people are listening is realizing that this really is a collaborative relationship. And as a professional, we have a role to play in helping you. But also as a consumer, you have, mm-hmm. you need to be self-advocating for yourself, much like we're talking about in medicine is, yeah, the doctor is supposed to be the expert and help you. But you're also ultimately responsible for your own health. You need to be understanding what it takes to keep yourself healthy too. You can be proactive in that and engage in resources like this wonderful podcast. But so that's, yeah, I think I'm wondering what you think about that too, is that balance of responsibility between the professional and the client. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I was going to ask you a question in that. What's your advice? How does somebody raise that awareness? And how do you help individuals, whether it's within yourself or a client, have that aha moment? That's what I struggle with trying to achieve more often. Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I love that. I think it feels like it should be such an easy question to answer. And yet my brain right now, as I'm processing the questions, like go in a hundred different ways. So let me see if I can focus in. (laughs) Well, that's actually probably very true. And that's why it's not so easy. I think that's true. Right. And I think, I think what you're, you're getting at Danielle is part of what the world of therapy has taught me in contrast to the advice world is in the financial planning world, we kind of learn, learn what financial planning is, all the technical pieces, and then tell people what it means and what they should do. Right. And the assumption is if I, they trust me and I give them good advice, they'll then do what they need to do. And that works some percentage of the time. But then there's this whole other time where it's like, 
they may even, the clients may even look at it and say, yeah, Danielle, I get it. I understand I need to do this thing or stop doing that thing so that I can get this thing with my financial life. But then they don't do anything about it, right? And so mm-hmm. the question I think for us is how do we help them grow into being able to, to take that action that we're recommending or help them see it for themselves? I think there probably is no easy answer because it's not the same for every client. It's not the same for every client. And I think that there's, this is overgeneralization, right? It's easy for me to hit the escape hatch and say, well, you got to do your own work. Okay, well, Ed, what the heck does that mean? Do your own work. And I think what I want to get at is curiosity, I think, is one of the biggest tools for change. So part of what we learn to do is get comfortable with asking questions that we don't know the answer to and allowing the client to respond Mm -hmm. to it. So in a much more practical sense, I was recently working with a couple where they're kind of in loggerheads about where they're going in their life and their relationship to each other and financially. And they just really gnarled up on that. And they were lamenting, like, we just don't even have any time to think about this. Like, we're just so busy running around, taking care of the kids and family and work and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just sitting there and I'm thinking, hmm, well, we could sit here and I could have empathy and I have empathy for that reality. And, you know, I give a little bit of an intellectual response and say, well, you know, you are in that season of life with young kids. And the research is very clear that marital satisfaction goes down (laughs) with kids as you're putting a lot of psychological energy into raising them. And it usually goes up as they age and then spikes empty nest. It can, there's some assumptions built into that, but so, you know, it's like you tell them that and they're like, okay, that's nice. We're still stuck. So, okay, now what do we do? Mm -hmm. And so one of the exercises that I had them do, and it was building off the client relationship that said, well, yeah, I have things I want to do in two weeks, three months, one year. I said, okay, well, let's great. Let's start there. And so I invited them both to slow down in that moment and start becoming more self-reflective, right? Because I do think as we become more self-reflective, we increase our self-awareness and it's from our Mm self-awareness that we're then free to start making new decisions. So we have to ask ourselves good questions. Like you were talking about before is I leave a meeting and maybe we could work on saying like, oh, well done, Danielle. Good job. Pat on the shoulder, (laughs) self-compassion and acceptance. But there's also that piece of, man, this place seemed to get a little stuck or that didn't seem to come. What do I need to do differently? Right. And so I think getting comfortable with asking ourselves those questions is the opportunity that helps us grow. And for a lot of us, Mm -hmm. we just haven't had the experience or had someone hold space for us to ask those questions of ourselves. And then part of what's beautiful in that working relationship is they, you prompting them to ask questions of themselves. They think about it. They articulate it. As a professional, you get to then reflect or mirror back what they've shared with empathy, compassion, mm-hmm. and further curiosity, which then takes them deeper into what they're exploring. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, I think that's like psychological stretching. Mm-hmm. I love that. Small things make big things happen, right? When we want to make big changes in our life, it just small incremental steps, because sometimes it's hard to, for a younger client to look at that. What does my cash flow look like when I'm 95 years old? It's going to cost me a million dollars a year just to, because of inflation. I've learned that, okay, my younger clients, I can't do that. I can't show them the 95. It's small incremental steps and build upon ultimately being able to look at your 95 year old selfie, if you will. 
Oh, yeah, I really like that because I think what that sets up in my mind is that learning about money is a developmental process, right? And much in the same way, if we go back to many of us can connect with learning to read, right? If we go way back Mm -hmm. to kindergarten, most of us didn't know how to read or we're just starting to put it together. And learning to read in very simple terms is the kids have to start with recognizing words, but before that, they have to recognize a letter and then they recognize a word and then they words connect it. And then words connect to create a concept. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a kindergartner and a, a preschooler right now. And there's, he's, you can see my preschooler trying to connect the dots between when dad says week, what time does that mean? When dad says month, mm-hmm. what does that mean? What day of the week is it? Like these are concepts that we take for granted. I say, Danielle, it's mm-hmm. Wednesday, April, whatever. And you're like, oh, okay, yeah, great. And but that's the same thing that's happening in personal finances. We have all these words that are foreign to most people. And so one of the things I love mm-hmm. to do with my clients is say, look, personal finance is like visiting a foreign country with its own language and its own culture. <laughs> and it's going to take some time to get comfortable living in the land of money because there is just so much to learn. And most of us are not linguistically fluent. So you, before we started the show, you said, well, I'm a financial literacy enthusiast and advocate. Mm-hmm. Right? And I think that that's a big part of this is we don't have the water cooler conversations about money and the different words that are associated with money. And so our, our vocabulary range is really too narrow to have effective communication. So we're going to increase our word count. Yeah, there's so many things to unpack there. And I want to talk about the family systems theory in a moment. But I think as advisors, and one of the things that I hold my account myself accountable to is I always want to continue to learn. And so I need to meet my clients where they are. And I spend a lot of time in educating them. And I'm actually meeting a young client this afternoon who market cap, uh, core, value, growth, ETF, mutual fund, her head spins. And so while we're reinvesting her sizable portfolio, we're going to, I have 40 slides to talk about What are the different investment styles? What is active versus passive? Because she has asked me, I want to learn more. My last advisor, everything went over my head and I was afraid to ask him or her, what does that mean? And so I want to, Mm -hmm. while yes, we're putting everything to work behind the scenes, I spend a lot of time with my clients, helping them understand on their level, what does it mean when we talk about the S&P 500 is down 25%. And so what I ultimately do is I'm selling my time and it's hard to be accessible to everyone, but going to your statement of, you know, financial literacy advocate, that to me is so incredibly important because my goal as an advisor is not to beat the benchmark by a thousand basis points. (laughs) I'll leave that to the active investment managers. My role as an advisor is to help every one of my clients, regardless at what stage they are, on the asset accumulation stage to have the knowledge, to be empowered with the knowledge, to feel in control of their financial lives and resulting in they have the freedom on how they get to spend their time. Yeah. You know, if I can take this in a slightly different way, I've been struck by studying some of the work of sex therapists and sex educators. And one of the things that they talk about in their work is that many times their clients don't even know the basic anatomy of their genitalia, right? They don't know that. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, well, I'm not going to tell you, I'm just going to tell you what to do. 
they empower mm-hmm. them with the language and being able to name and to look at and see it and sit with it. And I think that there's this correlation in personal finance where it's like, for too long, advisors have said, I'm going to hold the knowledge and power about how your financial anatomy works. I'm not going to inform you or teach you too much mm-hmm. because it's my job to do this and manage it for you. And it's disempowered people mm-hmm. to really feel empowered. And, and so what I hear you describing is like, no, I want to empower my clients to, be, to join me and partner with me in their financial life. I'm going to teach them what all these words mean, and I'm going to help them get comfortable sitting with their financial statements. And I think what you're implying is, I also know the learning curve can be long on this. And we don't necessarily, I can be doing things on their behalf in the background, like getting their portfolio reallocated while they're learning what I'm doing for them. So that way they're not missing out on the benefits of some of that work. So I just think that's just so powerful. And it just brings such an important point forward is if you're working with an advisor who's not willing to educate you or teach you about what this stuff means, it might be time to consider a different advisor. I agree with that statement. And so in my former life, when I was the COO and I was handling the corporate finances for a $5 billion firm, I sat there and said, we don't even meet with our clients. What are we getting paid for? And so as you move into being a high net worth value, there's a high net worth advisor. There's always these conversations of how am I going to add value to my client's life? And just putting it in mutual funds, I'll also say, you're not doing the work. The managers of these (laughs) funds are doing the work. So I had to completely disrupt my way and how am I going to build the business? How am I going to support myself to be able to to do what I want to do is to be able to help clients. And that's spending a lot of time and it's different for every client. And why I want to think that AI can fix these things for me, there's just no replacement for time. Oh, because, yeah. And I think what I would take that next step is time and then relationship, right? And I think as a therapist, Mm -hmm. that's what I've come to appreciate is it's in relationship that people learn, heal and grow. And so Mm -hmm. that relationship can be incredibly dynamic and enriching. And our industry, the financial industry, has notoriously been anti-relationship with its clients. As much as it says it's client relationship focused, mm-hmm. planners structure their business. No, it's all about accumulating assets. It's all about accumulating assets. We'll do an annual review with you for one hour. And then they, they wonder mm-hmm. why my clients won't change behaviors or take recommendations. Well, you don't have a relationship with them or you have a superficial relationship mm-hmm. with them. and. This is that tension that I've hit as I've come back into the field of financial planning, working as an in-depth couples therapist where I meet with my clients weekly, sometimes for years, coming back to the planning industry and talking with folks and saying, well, how many times do you meet with clients? Two, but maybe three or four after we get them started. And I'm thinking, man, yeah. So I think there's, I appreciate the disruption. I think, you know, that it doesn't always feel like what's the most profitable but it's what's the most meaningful and helpful. And in that way, there's a profit to it in my own line of thinking, at least. Yeah. And I think my younger self, it was all about, as I grew up from humble beginnings, it was all about acquiring things. And when the pinnacle of my financial success was after I co-founded the firm and we brought in, we raised $1.1 billion in small cap. I was finally making money that I'd always dreamed about, but I wasn't happy. And so that was when I had to really look inward and say, okay, 
well, what do I want to do with my life? It's not necessarily about how many zeros are on my paycheck. It goes to that fundamental require, you know, need as a human being for survival and meaning. And at this stage of my life, and maybe it's after you turn 50, it's you really try to chase that meaning. And so I can live with less zeros in my paycheck. But what really gets me excited about getting up every day is seeing progress and seeing my clients have those aha moments or reduce some of the stress and anxiety around their financial lives. And I get to have some part of that. And that's incredibly rewarding for me. I really appreciate you sharing that because I I think that that's a, a journey that feels familiar to me. While I haven't managed a billion dollar fund company, I had my own version of if I just become financially successful enough, then everything will be okay. Then it'll be great. Then it'll be good. And I'll be okay. And this is a story that I feel like I hear for so many people from humble beginnings where they just get, that's their focus. And it's understandable, right? Because the pain of not having financial resources is psychologically very strong. And it, it can be a motivating force to try to extract oneself from that reality. And yet there's this midlife reorientation, 40, 50. It's a different chronological age for different folks because it takes a different tipping point, different event, but something happens where we had this radical reorientation around what does it mean to have a relationship with money? What does it mean to accumulate? What does it mean to earn? And what's really the real purpose of my life? Because it's become clear to me that just making more money is not going to scratch that itch anymore. <laughs> exactly. And and that's, I brought it up a little bit earlier, but the family systems theory, I, through the CFP board, I participated in the program at Wharton. And when I was running the firms in my institutional world, we would always talk about creating some chart to understand a client relationship of who are all their third parties, who's their family. And so we could never get our head around it. And so when I went through that program and what I do in my private practice is I create this family systems chart. And sometimes my clients may look at it and be like, okay, what does that mean? But when, as my practice grows, I can look at this one chart and understand. And when I look at their goals, they have 10 family members, here are the things that are important to them and understand. And I'll pick up their best friend is always telling them about the newest, latest uh, thing to invest in, if you will. So I know that Lewis or Lewis is always in this client's ear. And so it just helps me be better when I sit down with my clients. And while they might not have that aha moment to look at this chart that I've created for them themselves, through working together and longer periods of time, hopefully then they can come back to this chart and say, okay, yes, this is part of my legacy. This is why I'm doing what I'm doing and get some insights from it. I love this. And it's one of my favorite things to do. And I start every client, even before they're a client, I have out my paper, blank paper right next to me. And I start drawing a family tree. And in family therapy Mm -hmm. world, we get trained in family therapy world, we call it genograms. And there's a whole set of way of coding it and the whole purpose. And so this goes back to what you're asking earlier is how do we evoke change? How do we get people curious about what's going on? And from my perspective, part of relationship and mental health is expanding perspective. That we, we are not these lone individual individuals that are creating our own life. No, there's been many forces and factors that have shaped who you are. And if you're in denial about that, well, they're going to keep shaping and influencing your life. And so part of the whole therapy mantra or mindset from my perspective, as I understand it, is becoming aware or conscious of all the forces or factors that are 
shaping you because as you become more conscious of them, you have more opportunities to influence or shape or navigate or move around that which has shaped you. And so when we start to draw these family trees, I think, yes, initially clients might be like, oh, well, that's nice. Or I appreciate you asking about that, but what's the point? Mm-hmm. And honestly, when I started out and I had the assignment to draw my own family tree and go interview my parents, I didn't fully get the meaning of it. And so I think that's the other thing that we think about in helping clients is they're on a journey of getting to meaning, but meaning is often the last thing that we arrive at. <laughs> Right. And so I think, yeah. you know, uh, George Kinder, are you familiar with his work, Seven Stages of Money Maturity? No. So highly recommend that read. He has a website, Kinder Institute. And George has done some of the most coherent writing on the stages of kind of emotional financial development, if you will. And he talks about the phases that we all pass through. Because if you think about, we all start in childhood completely innocent and unknowing about how money works. And then we move from that innocence into a naivete where we start to think we understand how money works. In childhood, we have all these experiences that we watch happen and we think we understand what's happening as children in the world. We have to. It's part of like if as humans, we have to feel like we understand and we we don't. We try to solve that confusion to get back to understanding and kids are doing that. But we know as adults that kids can't fully understand their, their world and their environment. And so They enter into this young adulthood and adulthood with some accumulated experience and knowledge, but it's fragmented at best. Mm -hmm. And that's where there's this opportunity to start to integrate and connect fragmented pieces and go back as we mature and get perspective on what was really going on. What was the true meaning of why mom and dad divorced or why dad wouldn't pay alimony or why mom was always scared at the grocery store about spending money or why dad's business failed and what that actually meant and or whatever happened, you know, that starts to move us into greater levels of maturity and awareness. We move from that innocence and naivete into a maturity reflective stance. And so I'm not doing it full service, George Kinder's stages, but in psychology, we know that people go through developmental stages. And so it's an application of, okay, yeah. I think it also helps alleviate things to say like, yeah, we all start innocent, not knowing about money. Mm-hmm. And we all go through this naive stage. And there's this further journey to go into maturity and understanding. And it's not just a functional knowledge of how money works, but it's kind of that meaning side too. Mm-hmm. I love how behavioral science has so many frameworks and it's kind of how my brain works. I love to understand how things work from a systems perspective. And then utilize that framework to guide me forward. And another framework that I like to look at is a cycle of change. Uh When I meet clients, and and this is I challenge myself, where are they at in that cycle of change? I might have a 75-year-old who makes $10 million a year and they only have $1 million saved. I know (laughs) I have a lot of work to do. And a lot of other advisors may walk away, but that's when I, in the back of my mind, that cycle of change framework comes Mm, up, mm -hmm. say, okay, how can I, this isn't about what shiny investments we're going to put in their portfolio. We have other work to do. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And it may, for many listeners, sound like a what? 75-year-old making $10 million a year and only has a million dollars? Like, how does that even happen? That was a hypothetical scenario. Yes. Yes. That... Hopefully there's not too many people in that position, but there are these kind of places where there's a big disconnect between 
high income, low wealth accumulation, right? Mm -hmm. Where people are very productive at making money, but not very productive at accumulating or holding on to it. And so I'm curious, what are the stages of change as you name them or know them? Well, I can't name all six up the top, but I mean, it's the cycle of changes even goes with any addiction issue. So it's awareness, awareness that I need to change or denial. And ultimately, at, even at the end of the cycle, it's you relapse, right? And hopefully we get better at it. So it's, I'll just summarize it. It's denial, awareness, acceptance making the change and then relapse and it just will start itself over. Yes. Yes. I think that I wonder if you're referring to like motivational interviewing and or the trans theoretical model of change. There's six stages of change. Yes, exactly. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, folks, as you're listening, you can also just very quickly Google stages of change and stages of change addiction. You'll get plenty of Google articles that will define those stages. But I think really part of what Danielle and I want to convey is there are these wonderful psychological frameworks out here that help give guidance and clarity about what's happening in your mind or in your relationship. And there are roadmaps. And each roadmap highlights or emphasizes some part of your psychological functioning and doesn't include other parts of your psychological functioning. And so these psychological theories or frameworks, you have to you want to get more and more comfortable learning about different ones because they're going to give you different pieces of the psychological lay of the land right? Our, our minds are incredibly complex. Our brains are incredibly complex, lots of different things happening. And so you have, to, I think that's part of that journey too, is I was just talking with somebody else is they went through one model of therapy and then they went to a different model of therapy and then they went to another one and they were kind of lamenting, like, why isn't there like one model of therapy that takes care of it all? And I was like, well, because we're complicated <laughs> and <laughs> we need different models of help and theory and knowledge to really get a grasp on how is it that we function as a human and being open to reflecting on that. What I love about a framework is, especially at times where you may feel lost, it's something to attach yourself to, to help guide you. That's the logical side or the left left side of our brain, if you will, as opposed to the right side, which is emotional and sometimes chaotic. And so in those times when I'm feeling lost or emotional, tapping into that left side or the more logical side of a framework helps ultimately guide me and helps me get out of my emotions. I love it. I love it. Well, and I think, you know, that's the beauty and the overlay between the field of financial planning and and counseling and psychology is both fields have their frameworks that help make sense or bring organization to what otherwise feels like chaos, right? We Mm-hmm. We need to organize information to help us make sense out of it. And there are financial planning frameworks. And in really simple terms for people who are listening, a budget is a framework. Mm-hmm. A net worth statement is a framework for organizing financial information so that we can translate it, communicate back and forth. And when I say net worth, you immediately have an image in your head of what's on that. And it's likely similar, mm-hmm. right? It starts with assets and liabilities. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, we're going to have the house and the 401k and so on and so forth on the asset side. And then we're going to have the mortgage and the credit card debt on the other side, right? All of that was... I'm sorry to interrupt, but that's normal to us. But most individuals, they'll talk about a budget, but they don't focus on turning that into business terms, which is creating a balance sheet, creating a forward-looking balance sheet, which is a statement of net worth and projecting it. And that's where I like to spend a lot of my time. The planners, that's what we do. 
I saw a statistic where Credit Karma said 76% of Americans don't understand how to calculate their net worth. Oh, I'm just allowing humility, right? And that I think for listeners too is planners are humans before they're planners. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we mm-hmm. even lose our own sense of depth perception of, of about the gap between what I know and what my client knows. And this is not to be diminishing, but it's it's easy to start to take for granted what seem like simple concepts. And so what I would say for people that are listening, as you're consuming or working with an advisor, is finding the advisors where you can be vulnerable and honest and say, I really don't know what this means. And we've talked about this several times throughout the show, and I really am so glad that it's shown up, is you want to find an advisor where you can say, look, Danielle, Ed, whoever it is, I get that you talk about this network thing all the time, but I'm really not getting it. Like mm-hmm. I, I get that it's important. I can sense that, right? Because I think people will pick up on and sense what we think is important as financial advisors and they'll kind of nod their heads and go along. But as advisors, we can practice that vulnerability and awareness that we may not be making as much sense as we think. And as uh, clients and consumers, you can self-advocate and say, I really need you to slow down and explain this in simpler terms for me and help me understand how a, a budget connects to a net worth statement. Mm-hmm. Because those are really important. Yeah. And so I'll, tapping back into my roots, I grew up in a very small farming community in Washington state. And most of my peers, they, their parents ran farms. Mm -hmm. And so you got to get out of school early if you went to work, but you had to go to this diversified occupation class. And I, I wasn't a farmer, but I ran a dance studio because my mother, I had to help contribute to, if I wanted to buy those Jordache jeans, I had to buy them myself. And so I love dance. And so I ran a dance studio, but I'll never forget this teacher. He taught me what a budget is. He didn't teach me about projecting it out, but one of my mentors early on in my career, and I was running, I was a CFO running financial statements for $75 million worth of revenue. Yeah. Yeah. And so he said, do you reconcile your own bank account? Do you create personal financial statements for yourself? And I was like, no, it's just me. I already know what I'm spending. I don't have to worry about that. But he said, at the end of every year, before the ball drops in Times Square, I sit down and I have personal financial statements. And not only do I make financial goals for myself, but I also make personal goals. And so I took that, kind of bridged both of those things together And so I created that ritual for myself and I still have my same simple Excel spreadsheet. I do have myself in my financial planning software, but I always just go to this Excel spreadsheet that I created in early 2000s. And so I spend the time to do that. I have tracked my net worth through various stages of my life. And so I try to impart that wisdom. My business partner and I, we put together a book financial literacy basics. And so it not only teaches them how to do a budget, but teaches them how to create a balance sheet, which I call a financial selfie because it's for younger individuals and that's (laughs) kind of all what they're doing. And then how to project your, this statement into care for your future selfie, which is basically a forward looking balance sheet. And so, and, and I speak in mantras. So when we talk about all of these things, know your worth, nourish your worth, check yourself and expenses. I have these little simple mantras that will hopefully kind of raise an alarm in somebody as they're adulting through life and build upon those financial literacy skills. 
What a beautiful way to bring this, this conversation to a close. I mean, we could keep going on, but I think what I love right now that I'm hearing is that awareness as a professional of what's the common language that the audience that I want to talk to is using and how do I use their language to bridge into my language and the concepts that are important Mm -hmm. to them. And so that, that selfie piece is, I just, I'm loving it. It's going to be in my vocabulary, your financial (laughs) selfie now. What does that mean? So Danielle, as, as we wrap up this conversation, is there a good way for people to connect with you? And we'll have links in the show notes too, but how can people connect with you if your work's resonated for them? Mm -hmm. Well, I have two different websites. One is my financial planning practice, which is 20 Concierge Wealth Management. But I have a podcast and sell the book through a website called colearningbooks.com, where it's kind of tapping in that left brain cognitive with the right brain of creative and emotional aspects. And I produce financial literacy coloring books. We've only done one thus far. And so, and then I released the podcast that we have on there as well. I love that. So we'll be sure to get the links for all of that. But I don't know if listeners, if you pick that up, a coloring book (laughs) in financial literacy, that's going to be a must to check out. (laughs) Danielle, thank you so much for the generosity of your time and spirit today. And I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Ed. It was an absolute pleasure. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed. Ed.